For several weeks now, we've been studying from the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah was basically a prophetic vision given to Isaiah by God in order to tell the people of Judah what was to come in their future. It also served another role. It foretold of the, the birth of Jesus Christ. And also, in a, in a third way, prophetically, it speaks to us in, in modern times as to things that are to come for the children of God in today's time that we live. But today we're going to begin to look at another prophet that lived at the time of Isaiah. And if you, if you look at 15 different sources on exact years of the prophets and kings of the Old Testament, you'll probably find 20 different opinions. Uh, they don't really seem to agree on exactly what year this happened or what that year happened. Um, not a lot of videotape tape left from those time periods, so it's hard to place an exact date. So when we give these dates, if you read something down the road that says something a few years different, then um, that's okay. I, uh, I have spent, in the last few weeks, have spent a lot of time comparing opinions as to dates, and I finally come to the conclusion that any date that you give, it should be within about 20 years of when it really was. So we'll go from there and we'll use these dates just as approximates. The, from the timelines, we see that Isaiah lived from somewhere around 7, or not lived from, he was a prophet to Judah somewhere around 740 B.C. to 700 B.C. Jeremiah then was a prophet to Judah somewhere between 627 and 580 B.C. So if you, if you take those, you can see from previous studies that we've, we've seen that all, although Isaiah prophesied of it, he died long before the children, the people of Judah were taken captive in, into Babylon. Both Jewish and Christian traditions say that Isaiah died by being sawn in half. Some say he was sawn in half with a wooden sword or a wooden saw, which is kind of an interesting thought, but that's traditional. Uh, he was killed by a king that didn't particularly like his teaching and preaching. Jeremiah, however, was a prophet at the time that Judah fell to the Babylonians. Many Bible scholars say that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, gave Jeremiah, after the Babylonians came in and conquered Judah, that he gave Jeremiah the opportunity to choose where he would go. He could either go into Babylon with the rest of the people or he could choose some other place. He had a certain amount of respect for him as the prophet of the Lord. And a lot of Bible scholars say that Jeremiah chose to go to a place called Mizpah, in Benjamin with a man named Gedaliah, who had been made the governor over Judea. And while there, the two of them with other people, Gedaliah was assassinated, and a man named Johanan took over as governor. At some point in the future, Johanan fled to Egypt, and he took Jeremiah and one of his scribes with him. Most likely, Jeremiah spent the remainder of his life still seeking in vain to turn the people to the Lord 
from whom they had so long revolted. In other words, there were a lot of people that left out of Judah at some time had run and ended up in Egypt. So as Jeremiah arrives in Egypt, he's still preaching to those people of God and trying to get them to turn their lives over to the God that he had been preaching about for so long and that they had heard about. Some believe that he was murdered while he was in Egypt by people that were angered by his prophecies. Turn the monitors off completely if you would. Thank you. There is no authentic record of his death. Some say that he possibly was around 90 years old when he died. You can turn this one back up now. That's one version of, of what Bible scholars say. Another version is that, um, this would be the short version, that he just went to Babylon with the rest of them. So you can choose which one. There's really no proof as to either one. But we can see that Jeremiah lived in the time that the Babylonians came in. He prophesied before it, but he was also alive when it happened. Isaiah, on the other hand, never got to see it happen. Either way, Jeremiah's call came when he was in the 13th year of King Josiah, and Jeremiah was about 20 years old. In fact, if you look at Jeremiah 1 and 5, it says that God appointed him to be a prophet to the nations even before he was born. And that's interesting to note because a lot of times we feel like that we go through a certain period in our time and then God puts a call on our life. It's interesting to note that Jeremiah said, or God told Jeremiah that he was chosen before he was ever born. And when you look at that and then you compare that to something else that Jeremiah wrote in, in Jeremiah 29 and 11, it kind of changes it, the whole idea of it, where he said, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Jeremiah was called of God before he was ever born. And then all of these years later, he writes that God is saying to him, I know the plans I have for you. God had plans for Jeremiah's life way before he was even born. And I believe today that God has plans for each and every one of us. He has plans for you, and he had plans for you long before you even had any idea what they were. And the events that take place in our lives are just preparation for the ultimate plan that God has for us. I believe that every event that happens in a person's life is just leading them to the ultimate thing that God has for them to do and the plan that he has for their life. Let's go back to the lesson. Jeremiah was a very outspoken prophet. He was outspoken in his pronouncement of God's judgment on Judah, probably more so than even Isaiah. Jeremiah was also very introspective. He struggled with and sometimes was overwhelmed by the role that God had placed him in. Remember, he started this when he was 20 years old. He was very young. And there were times when, when Jeremiah just took the burden of this preaching to these people that didn't want to hear it, and he took it so personally that it just really dragged him down. He was a man of deep feelings, and, and from those deep feelings, he also wrote another book that you're probably familiar with called the Book of Lamentations. And the Book of Lamentations is, is a series of five laments over the serious spiritual and moral condition of God's people. So here is a man that is very troubled. He is called of God. He is called to tell the people to turn away from their ways. 
And he's troubled over that because he knows they're not paying any attention. He knows that Isaiah before him had done the exact same thing. They paid no attention to him. And yet there's this call in his life to go do something and it doesn't seem to be doing any good. He's devoted his entire life to this and yet it doesn't seem to be changing anybody's mind or heart. Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. And I believe that's because he had such this deep inner desire to do what God had called him to do. He knew that God was, was going to judge these people in a tremendous way. And he felt like it was his responsibility to go out and make sure that these people turned from their wicked ways, but he didn't see it happening. And I believe that caused a lot of anguish in Jeremiah. Jeremiah he kind of interspersed his, his warning to the people with pleas to God to, to save them and to help me say what I need to say so that I can reach these people. And at some point, God finally said to him, don't pray for these people anymore. In Jeremiah 7 and 16, God said, so do not pray for this people nor offer any plea or petition, petition for them do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Even then, Jeremiah managed to sneak in a few extra pleas between the lines. He often engaged what many thought to be strange behavior. He would walk around in the streets with a, a yoke around his neck. That would draw attention. And he had other things that he would do to try to attack, attract attention not to himself, but to his message. It seemed that everybody was so busy doing their own little thing and serving whoever they wanted to serve that he had to do these things to get people to even look and listen. And even when they did look and listen, they didn't take heed. They just ignored it. He was taunted. He was put in jail. At one point, he was thrown in a pit to die. And he was often bitter about his experience and in his writings, he often expresses anger and frustration that he felt by not accomplishing what he felt like God had called him to do. He's not really depicted as a man of iron. He's not depicted as a particularly strong-willed person. And yet, in spite of that, he continues to preach and to pray for God's people. Jeremiah 6, verses 16 and 17 and this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. Jeremiah pictures in his writing here, travelers standing at a crossroad and faced with a critical decision. They're standing at a place where we can either go this way or we can go this way. And, and Jeremiah is saying, you need to go this way. And he's saying, you've been told time and time again that this is the way that God wants you to go. And here you are standing at a crossroad and you have another chance to make a choice and you still won't walk in the way that God has led you. Through different prophets, God had told the people, and especially here in Jeremiah, God specifically told the people to choose the ancient paths 
of their forefathers that consisted of repentance and obedience. Well, at least sometimes it did. If you remember, there were many times when the people of, of Israel were faced with the choice of, of following God or following after man, and a lot of times they just chose the wrong thing. But here, Jeremiah is specifically saying, look back at your forefathers that chose the right way, that chose the things that, that were of God, that chose the way of repentance, and follow after that. He said, ask for the ancient paths. But still, the people remained in idolatry, much as some of their forefathers had done, and they rejected God's way. Now keep in mind, this wasn't the first time these people had heard this message. Isaiah had proclaimed this message many, many years before. Some of these very people that Jeremiah is talking to probably heard Isaiah say the exact same words. And if not the exact same people, you know that there were some children and grandchildren of those people that had heard Isaiah and after all this time, still didn't want to hear it. And I believe that in today's society, we see the exact same thing. The Word of God goes forth so many times and people just say, I just don't want to hear it. I'm not going to do that. I'm not interested in that. I'm content living just like I'm living. But, but you don't understand what's going to happen. I don't want to hear it. Amen. And that's not everybody. There are people out there that want to hear it. And we can't sit all by ourselves and say, well, nobody wants to hear it, so I'm just going to not even try. Look what Jeremiah did. He was not the first prophet that had done the exact same thing with no success. But here he is at the age of 20 coming out and starting to preach this message over and over and over. And what did he get for it? He got ignored. He got taunted. He got put in jail and at one time thrown in a pit to die. But he didn't stop. And just because we go out and we invite somebody to church and they don't show up, we don't say, well, that must mean that nobody wants to hear it, so I just won't go invite anybody else. No. You go on to the next person. And you pray for that person. And then you go on to the next person and you pray for that person. And I believe that that's what the, the, the whole issue with Jeremiah was, is that he had this burden that was so strong, but he didn't see it happen. And I know times, there are times when we get in the same position, if we're not careful, that we, we say, well, I've done this and I've witnessed and I've tried to do this and I've, I've gone out and I've talked to people and it doesn't seem to make any difference. Then keep doing it. Keep doing it. If we have to become like Jeremiah where, where we just get such a strong burden that, that regardless of how we feel, we just continue to say the words. If people say, I don't want to hear it, then you go to somebody else and you tell them. I'm not saying you have to put a, a yoke around your neck and walk down Highway 60. But I believe that we can be a light to those around us and to the people we come in contact each and every day, the people we come in contact with. We can be a light to those people and we can be a witness to those people of the goodness of God. But Jeremiah wasn't preaching a brand new message. The message was the same, but the delivery was a little bit different. And we've said that in recent times here at High Point Church. Our message has not changed. But I do believe that times we have to change our delivery. 
the things that might have worked 25, 30 years ago won't always work today. That doesn't mean the message has changed. It just means that we changed the way that we put the message out there. Jeremiah spoke of, of watchmen. And the people of that day understood that concept very well. In that day, it was very common to have watchmen stationed on top of city walls or in towers that were built specifically for that reason called watchtowers or on hilltops to look for the approach of of an enemy or a hostile force. And they would report also any suspicious stranger that was approaching the gate. And if something was spotted or someone was spotted, they would sound a trumpet to warn the people that there was somebody approaching the gate. And that's what Jeremiah was talking about here. He said, I have appointed watchmen over you and said, listen for the sound of the trumpet. You haven't listened. And he was saying it's just like if, if the watchman on that tower or up on the wall saw an enemy coming and he sounded the trumpet and you didn't do anything about it. What's going to happen? The enemy's going to destroy you. And Jeremiah here was saying, God's already sent some people along. I'm not the first. There was Isaiah for one. And still, it didn't really matter who said it. The people didn't listen. In Jeremiah 6, verses 18 through 21. Therefore, hear, O nations, observe, O witnesses, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they have not listened to my words and have rejected my law. What do I care about, incense from Sheba, or sweet calamus from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will put obstacles before the people. Fathers and sons alike will stumble over them. Neighbors and friends will perish. God called on the surrounding nations. He told the people of Israel, the people of Judah, everybody around you is going to see what has happened. Everyone around you is going to witness the justice that comes when you're punished for your sins. All of the people that have looked to you and you have proclaimed for all these years that you are the people of God, at some point they're going to look and say, look what has happened to them. And no, as a side note, I do not think that September 11th, 11th, 2001, were America's chickens coming home to roost at all. At the time of Jeremiah, God dealt with his chosen people, the Jews, as a people or a nation. He deals with his people now as individuals. I'm not saying God won't judge a nation, but we are not saved in a group or as a nation. Our salvation comes on a one-on-one basis between us and God. Regardless what anybody might say from the pulpit. Today, because of the cross, we have the opportunity of personal salvation, not communal salvation as a nation. I don't believe that there is, well, I know that there's not. There is no way that we can get saved enough so that everybody else in the world is saved along with us. I think we will do good to make sure that we ourselves are saved. And I think we will do good to make sure that we have gone out into the world 
to proclaim the gospel so that others can make the choice to follow after God or not. But whatever the end, end decision is, it is that person's choice. Remember another thing, back at that time, God only spoke to and through his spokesperson. He didn't speak to people in general. He didn't, they couldn't go and, and just have a conversation with God through prayer. They went to a priest and offered up sacrifices. If God had a specific word for them, he spoke through a prophet so that they would know, here's what the word of God says. This is what God says to his people. Today, we don't have to worry about that. Yes, he still uses people as prophets. I'm not saying he doesn't. But he also speaks to us as individuals. Amen. So the people of the surrounding nations would see that God does not tolerate the worship of any other God. The Israelites had, had disobeyed the law of Moses and they had ignored the words of the prophets. And as a result, the Gentiles who they considered the heathens, would witness the Israelites' humiliation and know that the God of Israel is the one and only true God. Think about it this way. What other God could pronounce judgment on someone and then follow through with it? All of the other people, they might say, well, our God's going to do this, our God's going to do that, but it never happened. But here's the prophet saying, your God is going to judge you and everybody's going to see that he is who I said he was because he's going to do what I said. And that's exactly what happened. Judah faced disgrace in part because of their unacceptable worship. If you go back to the passages we just read, it's interesting to see that rather than being obedient, the people tried to impress God with expensive spices and and incense that they used in their worship preparations. All for show. There was nothing in the heart. The people went to extreme measures to import spices that were used in their worship practices in verse 20. Sweet calamus was likely a, a sweet-scented grass that was imported to Israel out of India and used in the anointing oil. It was a fragrance that was infused into the oil that they used in their worship. And keep in mind, from India to Israel in that day was not a FedEx or a UPS trip. It was by foot. It was by camel. It was a very, very difficult thing to get these spices. And they went to all of this trouble to have these spices just to infuse this oil. Frankincense came from a, a nation of Sheba that's probably located where the, the country of Yemen is now. Still a long distance. So they went to all of this trouble to make sure they had just the right oils and they had just the right incense and they had just the right fragrances when they got into their worship and yet there was nothing in their heart. And God said, I'm not impressed with your expensive preparations for meaningless worship. Because your hearts aren't in it. And I believe that today there's too many people that have 
come to to churches and have gone to church and they've shown up and they've gone through the motions and they they know how to how to raise their hands and they know the words of the song and they dress just a certain way and they look the part and yet there's nothing in their heart and I believe God looks at that the same way as I'm not impressed with that your burnt offerings are not acceptable your sacrifices do not please me Right. It, it, it's, it's, that's exactly what it has turned into. It's, it's more of a, an outward show. It's not something that reflects what's in their heart. It's something so that people can look at them and say, hey, wow, look, they must be a Christian. And I believe, yes, we should. People should look at us and see that we're a Christian. But it should be through the life we live and not because of the, the outward things that we go around proclaiming that. Again, I believe God looks at that exactly the same way, and He says, I'm not impressed with all the effort you went through to provide this meaningless worship, although it looked really good. And God said He would put obstacles before the people in verse 21, the word obstacle here can be translated as stumbling blocks. Literally, the word means to fall down. In this case, the stumbling block would be Babylon. And Babylon would be the thing that caused them to fall down. And because of their sin, God would eventually send the Babylonians to take the entire nation captive and destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. Jeremiah 6, 22 through 25. And this is what the Lord says. Look, an army is coming from the land of the north. A great nation is being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They are armed with bow and spear. They are cruel and show no mercy. They sound like the roaring sea as they ride on their horses. They come like men in battle formation to attack you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard reports about them and our hands hang limp. Remember, the Babylonians at that time had defeated the Assyrians. The Assyrians at one time were the greatest power on, on the known world. And now the Babylonians have gone and defeated them. And the Babylonians were going, and wherever they went, they defeated their enemies. And that's why they're saying here, we have heard the reports about them, and our hands hang limp. Anguish has gripped us, pain like that of a woman in labor. Do not go out to the fields or walk on the roads, for the enemy has a sword and there is terror on every side. He's telling the people that there's somebody coming. And they're big, they're powerful, they're cruel. And it was the Babylonians. And when they did, God said that they would show no mercy... And they would bring severe anguish and terror to the land. And these verses we just read provide a context of the attitude that God calls for the people to adopt in the next verse. And that's in verse 26. He said, O oh, my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son. Suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. The Israelites regarded the death of an only son as the absolute worst-case scenario. 
They always regarded death as a calamity. But the death of the only son meant that there was no one else to carry on the family line. That was an end to our family. If our only son died, then our family line ends right here with us. And that blow was just particularly hard to beat. God is telling the people, this is the kind of sorrow that you're going to experience. The kind of sorrow that only comes through the death of an only son. That kind of sorrow is devastating. The kind of sorrow that called for sackcloth and ashes. And we've, we've talked about sackcloth and ashes before. Remember, sackcloth was to be worn as a, a symbol of mourning and grief. And it's interesting that God spoke of sackcloth and ashes before to these very same people. Because these were the same people that routinely wore sackcloth and threw ashes up in the air on the day they fasted. So that everyone around would know, wow, look, they're fasting. They must be spiritual. Now they'd have a real reason to wear it. All the times you did it before and and it was just for show, there's going to come a time when you're going to have a real reason to wear sackcloth. Kind of like when you were a kid and, and your parents said, if you don't quit crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. You wore it around so long for no reason, now I'm going to give you a reason to wear it. And even though the Lord warned the people of the impending judgment, they were still unprepared for it because they didn't accept the message from God's prophet. They had heard it time and time again and went, so? And here was this description of this this gigantic army that was cruel and they were defeating everyone that they came in contact with and still they went, so? But you're going to suffer. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be taken captive. Your land's going to be flattened. Your city's going to be flattened. Your temple is going to be flattened to the ground. And they still went, so? Why? Because they didn't believe it. They had gone so long in the way that they had gone that they just didn't care anymore. Now they're faced with destruction and God tells them, you know what? You better start grieving in advance. Sister Helen. That's right. That's that's exactly right. I'm sure Sister Helen spends a lot of time in the working in a jail ministry, and if you look today at the overwhelming population of prisons and jails in the United States, you will see that there is also within that group an overwhelming transition to Islam and to the Muslim faith in our prison system. So not only have we 
we turned away from, from righteousness so that we end up in prison. But then once there, we turn to something other than the one true God. And as she said, it's exactly what we're seeing here with the people of Israel. They have turned away from God, and at the same time, they've also accepted the things of the people around them and turned to something else that they value just as highly. But I believe that somewhere in here, in this warning that, that Jeremiah is giving, God is trying to tell the people that, you know what, if you repent and if you humble yourself before me, I'll spare you from the Babylonians. I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm giving you an overview of, of what's coming, and it's a guarantee it's going to happen. But put on sackcloth and ashes and, 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 and be humble before me and repent of your sins, and, and I can save you as a nation. And they still said, so what? We're happy doing what we're doing. In Jeremiah 6, 27 through 28. I have made you a tester, he's speaking to Jeremiah here, I have made you a tester of metals and my people the ore, that you may observe and test their ways. And they are hardened, they are all hardened rebels, going about to slander, they are bronze and iron, they act corruptly. Because of the impending disaster, God is, has asked Je Jeremiah to act as a metal tester and prove the moral character of the people. And this was meant to show that God had given His people a fair chance to prove that they did not deserve judgment. Here's your chance, folks. If you don't think you deserve judgment, then let me see it. The prophets, Jeremiah's past and present ministry, would reveal that their true attitude towards God was exactly what it appeared to be on the surface. They didn't care. In their hearts, if their hearts were indeed pure, Jeremiah's preaching would have acted as a purifying, a purifying fire, revealing the people's true faith. In other words, when they went through these trials and when they came through the fire, that all of the impurities, as it was in metal in those days, when they would heat it up to this extreme, temperature and all of the impurities would be drawn out and what would be left would be the pure metal that you were seeking after and instead what it did it just hardened the people's hearts even more they now not only turned against god they turned against god's prophet they didn't like what he was saying they were like the inferior metal that they were left with impurities even after a thorough refining process Or, iron ore, predictably yields pure metal to the refiner. But a hardened heart and will is a bit more difficult to change. Because see, that, that iron ore, it has no choice. When it's heated up to a certain temperature, the impurities are going to separate from the good part. We as people, on the other hand, we have a choice whether to give up those impurities or not. And what had happened here is the people had decided just to hang on to them. Regardless how hot the fire got, we'll just hang on to them. The people's reaction to Jeremiah showed that 
God was justified in allowing the Babylonian invasion. I've warned you. I've told you. I've, I've given you chances. I've told you of the good. I've told you of the bad. I've told you what your blessings would be if you turned back to me. I told you what would come if you didn't. And still you choose to go your own way. And I believe that the only way these people's hearts would be changed, and God knew this, was through the fire of affliction at the hands of the Babylonians. And Jeremiah spoke of, of the many sins that made the people all act corruptly in verse 28. And these were things like insincerity and meaningless worship, things that Isaiah had spoken of also. But here's an interesting thing. These people never stopped worshiping God completely. Archaeologists have found evidence back to that time, and it shows that the people still worshiped the true and living God, but right alongside of Him, they worshiped the same gods that the Canaanites worshiped. And this practice is called syncretism. They actually put another God in sync with their God and served them together. Well, we're still serving God. What are you talking about, Jeremiah? Yeah, but you're not just serving God. Pottery from that time has been found with the inscription, to Yahweh and his Asherah. And what that was, they believed that God had a female companion just as many of the other pagan gods did. So they made these potter, this pottery and they would engrave it to God and his, his female companion or God and his girlfriend, God and his wife. Well, we still said God. They believed in God, they just added a few extras in there. Archaeologists have found figurines of female goddesses in Jerusalem near the area where the temple once stood, dating back to the pre-Babylonian exile time period. It's interesting to note, though, that nothing like that has been found that dates back to the period after the Babylonian exile. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 48 and 10, speaking to the same group of people, See, I have refined you. Though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. It seems that captivity in Babylon for those years seemed to have burned the corruption from the people's hearts. When they came back, they didn't go back to the other gods that they had once served along with the true God. But the problem that they faced right now and the thing that they were up against the most and the thing that haunted these people was that they had done these things for so long, they really didn't care what God said. Paul spoke of this in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. He wrote to Timothy, he said, The Spirit says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. The people of that day, their conscience didn't tell them what was wrong because their conscience didn't work anymore. Have you ever known anybody that was a pathological liar that 
couldn't, as somebody used to say, they, they couldn't tell the truth if the truth was easier. It just didn't matter. Even if, if, if telling the truth wouldn't get you in trouble, they still chose to lie. Why? Because their conscience doesn't, doesn't alert them as to when something is wrong. And that's what had happened to the people of that day. Their conscience just didn't work anymore. And Paul was telling Timothy to guard against developing this similar insensitive conscience and then slip away from a life that would honor God. He said, Timothy, you've got to be careful of that. Because if you go out and you do those things long enough, eventually it won't even bother you anymore. Someone once said that they knew exactly what was wrong with the world. This person said that all the world's problems could be blamed on the death of the permanent record. That's right. That's exactly right. Remember back in grade school, you lived in fear of something being placed on your permanent record. That's all anybody have to say. If you do that, you realize it's going to go on your permanent record. And that was this record that somewhere was kept that followed you all the way through school, all the way to your next job, and all the way up until retirement, until death, and then they like slid it in your casket before they buried you. Your permanent record. <clears throat> we learned to think of the consequences of doing certain things because we didn't want it to be on that permanent record. Because everyone knew that once it was on your permanent record, it could never be erased and it would follow you for the rest of your life. Why? Because it was permanent. Sister Joan. That permanent record. And I don't know if that existed, but we believed it did. And one thing for sure, we know that God, not like Santa Claus, but in His infinite wisdom, He knows everything we've ever done. Now the good side of that is that if we have repented and He has forgiven us of that sin, He doesn't remember it against us anymore. See, that's the good part. The problem with the people of Judah is that they never bothered to repent. They fell into sin, into such a state of sin, that they really just didn't even know they were sinning and they just didn't care if they did. Today, people don't believe that and if they did, they don't care because if a teacher threatened to put something on a child's permanent record, before the day was out, that teacher would be in a lawsuit that they've damaged that child for life. And the problem is this, just like the people of Judah, when we lost our permanent record, we also lost our shame that went with it. Used to, you could hear somebody, a, a child, or tell somebody you should be ashamed of yourself. 
I think a lot of children now, if you did that, they'd go, what's that? What are you talking about? When we lose our shame, spiritual blindness takes over and we don't even see the sin. We do like the people of God. We worship God, but too often we mix our own little gods in with it. Pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of fame, a bigger house, a newer, nicer car. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Please, don't, don't take that and twist it into something I didn't say. The only time there's something wrong is that when we put God behind those things in the order of importance. I hope you have a $10 gazillion house and a whole fleet of Rolls Royces sitting in the driveway as long as you put God ahead of them. But if you lived in a cardboard box and you put God first, it would be a whole lot more meaningful. Those things only become wrong when we place them between us and God. Sister Jean Gray was a Sunday school teacher when I was younger, and she used to always say that anything that you put between you and God is closer to God than you are. And I understood that as a younger person, but as I got older, it seemed to make a whole lot more sense. And there's people that say, well, I would, I would never put things before God. I, I would never do that. That's just crazy. And I've heard people say that, and then at some point heard them say this. Well, I, I had to take those extra hours at work because of the bills, and that's why I can never be at church anymore. Was it the bigger house and the newer, nicer car and the money and, and all those things that caused us to go get ourselves in debt that caused us to have to, in turn, place those things before God? Well, that's not the same thing. I'm not saying that if you have to work and can't go to church that you've backslidden. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that if you choose at some point to place your job so that you can have more money and have more things ahead of your service to God, then you need to take a check on your priorities. And that's true, but what I'm talking about here is that when people, they post up that you can take some overtime and they go, I'll, I'll take it. Is that a problem? It can certainly become one. If we start placing the things of this world ahead of God, are we saying they are more important? And if we are doing that, how does that differ from the people of Judah? I'm not saying that we need to all go next week and get rid of all of our stuff and we all move into the basement of the church. I'm not saying that at all. Don't twist what I'm saying here, please. 
Well, he said we need to sell our house. No, I'm not saying that. I am saying that we need to keep our worship pure and pleasing to God. I am saying that we need to keep our lives dedicated to God. I am saying that we need to make sure that we don't allow those things to become as important or more important to us than God. That's when it's dangerous. I believe we need to keep our hearts in tune with the Spirit so that we can hear when God is speaking to us. The people of Judah, they were so far out of tune with serving God that when the prophet spoke, they went, huh? It was like Charlie Brown's teacher in all of the little Charlie Brown shows. Womp, 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 womp. And that's all they heard. It didn't make any sense to them, and they didn't care. We need to cultivate our relationship with God through prayer, studying the Word. David said, I've, I've hid the Word in my heart so that I won't sin against it. Well, we can't hide the Word in our heart if we don't ever read it. And when we read it, we can't just read it as, a, as, a, as the newspaper. We have to let it become something inside us. So that it can be like David where we say, Thy word have I hid in my heart so I won't sin against you. We must be on guard all the time so that our conscience recognizes the voice of God when He speaks to us. That's what Paul was telling Timothy. Don't let those things get to a point to where when God speaks to you and your conscience is, is, is kind of put on notice there that you just ignore it. And if we do those things, I believe that we will see the things that could potentially slip into our lives and cause us to become spiritually blind to the sin that has crept into our lives. And Jeremiah wrote in his other book that he wrote in the book of Lamentations, in chapter 3 and verse 40, he said, Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. And I believe that that applies to us today. Let us examine our ways. Let us look at what we're doing. Let us look at all the things that we've allowed to come into our life and let us take those and test them. And it doesn't just mean test them. It means if they fail the test, we get rid of them. Let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. And then David wrote in Psalm 139, Verse 23 and 24, a very familiar passage of Scripture that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, there's two parts to that. The search me, O God, is good. But just finding a problem, it'd be like you, you, you start seeing some signs of, of little crumbly things around the baseboards of your house, and you have the people come out and you say, I need you to check for termites. And they come out and go, oh yeah, you've got termites all through your house. And you say, okay, thanks. You're not going to do anything about it? No, I just want to know if I had them. 
And that's what a lot of people do. You know, they, they, they might just say, well, I, okay, God, well, you've searched me and you've told me that's wrong and um, I appreciate that. You're going to stop? No. That's what the people of Judah did time and time again. God spoke to them. He pointed out the things they were doing wrong. He gave specifics, even down to their fasting and wearing the sackcloth and ashes and all that stuff and and how that's not pleasing. And you should do it this way. He gave them all of these specific things and they still said, thanks for pointing that out, but we'll just keep doing it our way. I think we have to be cautious so we don't fall into that. Not that that you're going to live a perfect life. But the point here is that when we do slip, when we do maybe fall a little bit or we, we find something there that shows up, if David thought that his life was perfect, and would always remain that way, he would have never said, search me, O God, and see if there's any offensive way in me. Somebody's not buying into that. If David thought that his life was perfect, he would have never said, search me, O God, and see if there's any offensive way in me. Things can creep in. Things creep into our lives and we don't even realize it. And that's why we have to be in tune with God so that He can speak to us and say, you need to take a look at that. Lead me in the way everlasting. Could we purpose in our hearts that starting today we'll live with this thought in mind? Lord, look at my heart. If there is anything there that I don't see, if there's anything there that I just refuse to acknowledge, please show it to me. And when you do, I'll repent of it because I know that if I repent, you'll forgive me and make me clean as I stand before you. God bless you. For the dawn. Amen. Amen.